Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. Russian attacks pounded civilian targets today, leveling an apartment building in Kyiv and damaging residential areas just before ceasefire talks were set to continue. We'll hear how Ukrainians are managing amid the terror and how Western powers are responding three weeks into this war. Plus, the Russian government is threatening to seize assets and even arrest executives of Western companies. We'll talk about a new Wall Street Journal report. That's all coming up next. Good morning. Welcome to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim. Russia's deadly attacks on cities in Ukraine continue to intensify today as a widening humanitarian crisis has now forced more than two million Ukrainians to flee. As the invasion enters its third week, we're going to take stock of the war's devastating impact and the further actions the U.S. and its allies may take. And we're going to begin this morning with an update from Lviv with Richard Enzor. He is Ukraine correspondent for The Economist. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Marissa. Thanks for having me. So as we said, um, you're in Lviv in the western part of the country um, where a lot of refugees are, are flowing to or through on their way to Poland and other European countries. Can you just give us a sense of what it is like, where you are, uh, what the mood is in the city? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the mood continues to be one of, you know, very strange situation where people are passing through, trying to make a new life here or just getting off the train exhausted, having just gone through something extremely traumatic. So this kind of sea of emotion that you're in when you walk down the street or talk to people is really affecting. And just the numbers on this are so incredible. You mentioned at the top there that more than 2 million people have left the the country to go to Europe. That's moving so fast. I just checked and they're hitting, they're hitting 3 million today wow. out in a country of, in a country of 44 million people as a share of the population. That's like all of Florida becoming refugees or all of the state of New York, just like in two weeks, right. two and a half weeks, becoming refugees. It's really incredible. Just devastating. What I mean, are people coming and hoping to stay there, not leave Ukraine? Or do you feel like most people are just hoping to get out because of the bombardment by Russian troops and, and airstrikes? 
Yeah, it's a real mix of things. You know, I, I haven't met anyone who is excited about the idea of becoming a, a, a European or going to live in, in Germany. Everyone you speak to wants to go three weeks back in time. And they want to go back to, to their home and to have a, a kind of undisturbed life. But because of this new reality where you have to make pretty terrible choices, you know, you have a lot of terrible options and you have to choose. Um, it, it's, a, it's not easy, but there are a lot of different opinions out there. I spoke to people today who, who said, listen, I, I don't want to leave Ukraine. I want to stay in the West. This is the safe part of the country. So this is where I've got to be. Other people... For them, it's not safe enough to be in Lviv because here we've also seen rocket attacks not too far from the city in recent days. And to get into Poland, to get on that NATO territory, to get away from the country that Russia is waging war against is paramount for them. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's even, it's even very difficult because men are not allowed to cross the border under martial law in Ukraine. They have to fight or contribute in some way to the defense of the country. So you see a lot of families getting torn apart right here at the border, you know, these tearful goodbyes, men bidding farewell to their wives and children and not knowing if they're ever going to see them again. Pre pretty intense stuff yeah. just playing out on mass here. And what is, I mean, your sense of, you know, th these conscripted Ukrainian civilians who are now being asked to essentially put their lives on the line um, are, I, I mean, I'm sure there is a wide range of feelings and emotions. But I mean, what we saw in the first days of the war was a real, you know, eagerness by some people to stand up for their country. Um, what can you tell us just about the sort of mood among those men and I think some women, too, who have chosen to stay? Yeah, that's right. I mean, more than ten percent of the of the of the of the army here is is female. So of course, it's men and women lining up to defend the country. I think the the conscription or these kinds of rules about um, needing to fight and and needing to to serve time in the army they're quite popular over here. People understand that you know this is this is an existential threat that the country has been facing, and particularly now still faces. So I think most people, when they talk about, when they discuss openly with you, this idea that they have an obligation legally to go and defend their country, they also feel equally that they have a moral obligation to do precisely the same thing. They say to me, I must do this and I want to do this. Um, that, that is a very wide, widely shared sentiment here. But not everyone agrees with it. Um, you know, I, I spoke to a woman who's outside of Ukraine in the EU right now. She's seven months pregnant um, and her, 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 her husband cannot join for the birth. And I mean, that's, that's just a, a small window into the kinds of situations that people have to face, um, you know, really important life, life, life events, just not playing out in the way that you imagined that they might even a month ago. Everyone's lives are being upended. Um, but the, the, yeah, this is, this is the, the price of war. Absolutely. Um, we know that President Zelensky will give an address to Congress tomorrow. Um, he has been speaking to Canadian counterparts, to European counterparts, asking for more arms, asking, um, you know, repeatedly for a no-fly zone, which has been rebuffed. What do you hear on the ground about the expectation about help from the West? And are people frustrated by how, how things have gone? Are they uh, encouraged by the sanctions? Is there any sense on the ground? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's possibly the most difficult aspect of this war, just how much should the West help and how much, what exactly should the, rest, should the West 
be risking by giving that help. So we've already had recent debates about the no-fly zone, about possibly donating some old Polish jets to Ukraine that the Ukrainians are trained and know how to fly. Um, those have been described as too hot to handle or a little bit too difficult to give to Ukraine without American fingerprints on it um, in a way that might potentially provoke a Russian response that could really see a cycle of escalation that gets us to a place where we really don't want to be. Uh, there are other options in, in terms of giving slightly more sophisticated air defense weaponry that will let Ukrainians take down some of these Russian planes um, at a greater scale. Clearly, at some point, there is there is a certain level where maybe the West is, you know, helps too much and risks really direct confrontation with Russia. The question is, are we there yet? And I mean, this is a debate that's going to keep playing out. Of course, the the position of President Zelensky is the West morally and practically can do a lot more and must do a lot more um, if it if it really cares about uh, making sure that Russia doesn't get what it wants from this war of aggression. Absolutely. Before we let you go, Richard, I'm just curious um, about your plans. Do you plan on being there for a while? And, and I don't know, how, how safe do you feel? Yeah, I mean, in Lviv, of course, it's it's one of the safest parts of the country. We're we're going to be moving around the country a lot more in the in the future. But of course, this is never something that's safe. And there was some tragic news today about uh, well, a team of three Fox News journalists being attacked and two of them being killed, um, which is obviously you know, dr- dreadful news. And, and one more item of dreadful news in what is you know already a catastrophe. Um, in terms of the war. But I think, you know, we have an obligation to, to try and report what one of the most pivotal and historic events that have happened in recent memory. Um, and so with The Economist, I'm going to be doing that on the ground to make sure that our readers can get a sense of what really is happening here and how that affects the world and affects them. Well, we really appreciate your work. Richard Enzor, Ukraine uh, correspondent for The Economist. Thanks for your time today and everything you're doing. Thank you very much. We are talking about the latest on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I want to now introduce Stephen Biddle. He's professor of political science and international affairs at Columbia University. He's also an adjunct senior fellow for defense policy at the Council on Foreign Relations and recently wrote an article in Foreign Affairs titled Arming Ukraine is Worth the Risk. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Rose Gademuller of Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and its Center for International Security and Cooperation. She's also former Deputy Secretary General of NATO from 2016 to 2019. Rose, we really appreciate you being here again. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Rose, I'll start with you. Um, I guess sort of your thoughts uh, hearing from Richard on the ground and, and just as we you know enter this third week are we where you would have expected a few weeks ago? Uh, how do things look from here? Honestly, I've been really impressed with how well the Ukrainian armed forces have uh, performed and how well the Ukrainian people have held up under this unrelenting barbaric pounding by the Russians. The Russians are raining down missiles on uh, civilian targets, those horrific uh, Photos overnight of the uh, attack on the on the cell the cell block the apartment block mm-hmm. in uh, in Kiev were just heartbreaking and so uh, nevertheless just as Richard reported people are really 
holding on and their morale seems to be holding up and their determination seems to be holding up. So I am impressed with Ukraine and Ukrainians and wasn't sure they could hold out uh, two weeks ago. Absolutely. Stephen Biddle, we just have a few minutes before our first break, but I'd love to get your take on the same question. Yeah, I, I think everyone's been surprised that Ukraine has been able to hold out the way they have. That's partly due to heroic resistance and unusually proficient military resistance. It's also been uh, in part a function of poor Russian military performance. I think people have been surprised both at how tenacious the Ukrainian defense has been, but also at how shambolic the Russian offensive has been, how poorly planned it was, how poorly executed it's been at the tactical and operational levels. This combination of the two, plus, of course, Western munitions support, Uh, is producing something that's looking a lot more like a stalemate than a blitzkrieg at this point. Why do you think the Russians were unprepared, in your words? I mean, is it equipment? Is it uh, morale? Is it just straight-up preparation and and tactical sort of decisions? Well, there are immediate and and deeper problems here. The, The immediate problem appears to have been that Putin was laboring under a misbegotten intelligence assessment that Ukraine would collapse like a house of cards. And as a result, the offensive was designed to be a fait accompli that would seize Kiev in a day or two, install a puppet government, and withdraw before sanctions could be invoked or before mobilization could take place. And obviously, that was a gross misreading of Ukrainian will to fight and of the capacity of the Ukrainian defense forces. But as a result, in the early days in particular, the Russians were taking enormous tactical risks in the interest of moving fast. Mm. You know, Tank formations in column, on roads, no dismounted infantry support, no artillery support, no nothing. That moved faster, but incurred very, very heavy losses. Wow. All right. We're going to come back in just a minute. We're talking about the latest on the Russian invasion of Ukraine with Stephen Biddle of Columbia University and Rose Gottemuller of Stanford University. What are your questions about the war? What, if any further actions, would you like the United States to take to defend Ukraine? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. We're here this hour with Stephen Biddle, professor of political science and international affairs at Columbia University. He recently wrote uh, an article in Foreign Affairs titled Arming Ukraine is Worth the Risk. Also with us is Rose Gata Muller, excuse me, Rose, of Stanford University's Freeman uh, Spogli Institute for International Studies and its Center for International Security and Cooperation. Um, and Rose, of course, you were Deputy Secretary General of NATO from 2016. 16 to 2019. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we heard right before the break, um, Stephen talking about the sort of miscalculation by Russian forces. And we do know that they have uh, taken um, at least 
kidnapped, I believe, one or two mayors, um, installed a puppet mayor in at least one city. Is that what you think the plan is? And how does that kind of track with what Stephen just laid out, which is sort of a, a, a broader plan that has not worked out so far in Putin's favor? Yes, they seem to be uh, following a kind of uh, mini plan now to do what they wanted to do in Kiev all along. I think that their main objective, Putin's main objective, was a, a blitzkrieg that would have taken over Kiev and toppled the Zelensky government immediately and replaced it with a puppet regime. It didn't work out that way. So they are taking what looked to be, I mean, it's really tough for the for the mayors uh, and for those cities where this is going on, but it, it seems to be to convey that the objective is still there, even if they are not able to accomplish it on that strategic level of taking the capital. I will note, though, that Putin has changed his tune a bit in the last 10 days from talking about regime change and denazification in Ukraine to talking instead about, uh, you know, Zelensky's government can remain on, et cetera, et cetera. Now, whether they would uh, stand up to that promise uh, going forward, I don't know. But as these diplomatic efforts begin to open up a bit, uh, that was, from my perspective, an interesting development. Yeah, Stephen Biddle, uh, talk a little bit about that and where you think the capital city, Kiev, is in terms of, you know, staying in Ukrainian hands. What happens if it does fall? Uh, if it does fall, the war doesn't end, right? The, the United States has learned that several times. When Kabul fell, the war in Afghanistan didn't end. When Baghdad fell, the war in Iraq didn't end. If, if Kiev falls, the war in Ukraine is not going to end. It may or may not change nature. Uh, depending on how much of the government escapes before the collapse, conventional defense of the remainder of Ukraine could continue. Even if the government is destroyed, if heaven forbid Zelensky is killed, if, if the government is, is simply unable to continue to function, as we saw in Afghanistan, as we saw in Iraq, as the Russians, as the Soviets saw in Afghanistan, right. it's entirely plausible that you'd simply get an insurgency at that point. The Russians would still not have secured some kind of stable puppet government in Ukraine. The war would continue. Its nature would just have shifted from high-end you know, conventional to uh, guerrilla insurgency. I mean, Rose Gottemuller, what do we know about ongoing diplomatic efforts between Ukraine and Russia? It feels like every day there's some attempt at a ceasefire, um, mostly most have not held. Do you have any hope that there are diplomatic opportunities here? You you just talked about Putin's sort of changing tone, but it's hard to know, of course, what he really means. Right, whether he'll stick with it. Let me just, before I answer you, Marissa, just mention that, uh, Stephen, when I'm thinking about this bad case uh, of uh, the capital being taken over and the government toppled, I'm thinking about what will happen as resistance, not insurgency. Mm. So I think we'd all be uh, better off if we're thinking in, in those terms as to what would happen in that in that very bad case. But uh, yeah, the diplomacy does seem to be opening up a bit this uh, past week. Uh, the foreign ministers of Ukraine and Russia met in uh, Turkey. Those discussions uh, seem to be serious, although neither side budged publicly. And that is another important Point, Marissa. At this time, the diplomacy needs to be quiet. And the fact that we don't know much about what's going on is a good thing. In the weeks running up to the invasion, we had this horrible Russian megaphone diplomacy going on where they were even leaking U.S. positions to the press in order to put everything out on paper. It was a sham. But now I have hope because things are quiet 
and behind the scenes, the way diplomacy should be conducted, that we will see some progress. The last thing I'll just note is that President Putin has been hearing a lot from a number of interlocutors. Neftali Bennett, the leader of Israel, has been talking to him quite regularly. And the high-level continuing contacts from Europe are good too. Chancellor Scholz and President Macron spoke with Putin just in the last, uh, in the last day. So I think that, that there's multiple layers. Of course, these uh, talks continue in Belarus at a lower level. They're on to their fourth uh, their fourth round uh, and beyond at this point, but I think this is helping to stabilize the humanitarian corridors so we can begin to see people getting out more safely without the uh, continuing dreadful attacks on the columns as they were trying to move. I want to bring in a caller, but uh, first, Stephen Biddle, did you want to respond to any of that? Well, it, we, we have to hope that some sort of negotiated settlement creates a ceasefire and ends the war. The, the alternatives to that are really, really ugly. I mean, Putin is not going to win this war in the sense of securing his political objectives at a reasonable cost. So the issue is how exactly is something other than Putin winning going to work out? The ways it could work out other than some kind of negotiated settlement uh, between the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, are truly dark. All right. We have a caller from Walnut Creek. Sara, go ahead. You there, Sara? Yeah, hi. I have a question uh, that uh, for regarding the diplomacy at the beginning, before the war started, then France and Germany were negotiating just to agree that Ukraine will not be a member of NATO and nobody would have been killed and not prior to real war. Why United States did not participate in that negotiation and diplomacy in that stage? Great question. Uh, Rose, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I'll I'll start anyway. Uh, It's a very good question. The fact is that at the time we were working on trying to preserve the so-called Normandy format, the Normandy process and the Minsk agreements, which were meant to uh, resolve the situation in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. And Germany and France, uh, together with Ukraine and Russia, were uh, leading in that in that effort. And so that is the reason why they took the lead during that period. But in the run-up to the invasion, uh, President Biden uh, did speak with Putin, uh, did try uh, on the phone at least to uh, talk him down from this uh, situation. So at the present moment, I actually think uh, President Biden's being wise to let others uh, lead the effort here. And we will see uh, then when he thinks it will be useful and proper to to dock into the diplomatic process. Absolutely. Uh, Stephen Biddle, we have um, some questions coming in about uh, arms. And as I mentioned, you just uh, wrote a column really arguing uh, for for more military aid. So I want to read a couple comments and then go to you. Michael tweets, the air attack on the training base brought Russia dangerously close to the Polish border. I think NATO should establish a limited no-fly zone, a 10-mile wide band on the Ukrainian side of the border. Also regarding the Polish MIGs, which are the fighter jets, why didn't they just leave them on the tarmac with the keys and the ignition? Ukrainian pilots could have taken the train to Warsaw or whatever. Um, Stephen Biddle, can you just kind of lay out where we're at with, you know, arming the Ukrainians and um, maybe talk a little bit about the the risks of a no-fly zone and why the U.S. has been and NATO has been pretty uh, resistant to that? Yeah, arming the Ukrainians and enforcing a no-fly zone are very, very different military undertakings. 
Uh, and in particular, enforcing a no-fly zone will almost certainly require NATO to shoot at Russians and probably kill Russians directly. Arming Ukrainians, on the other hand, does not. And if historically, states have tended to observe a distinction between other powers that are arming your enemies, which isn't great, but which has relatively infrequently resulted in war between the arming power and the target, and enemies that are actually pulling the trigger and killing your people, yeah. or that are acting as territorial havens from which other people can kill your soldiers uh, directly. Um, killing your soldiers directly has often produced military retaliation. Uh, the Israelis invaded Lebanon in 1982 when Lebanon was acting as a haven for the PLO to attack Israel. Rwanda attacked the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 1996 when Hutus were using you know, Congo territory to attack Rwanda and so on. By, by contrast, when states have armed others, the target never likes it, uh, but they're much less likely to use military force uh, to stop it. So before World War II, for example, before Pearl Harbor, the United States transferred a billion dollar, $12 billion of resources to Britain under Lend-Lease. Germany did not attack the United States prior to Pearl Harbor to cut off Lend-Lease. So that there's a significant difference in escalatory risk. Now, everything is risky in this war. Right? Putin's invasion has created risk for everybody. But things are not equally risky. And the stakes in a direct shooting war between NATO and Russia are you know, potentially existential for everyone involved. Uh, the, the, the stakes are bad as they are. The stakes in a shooting war between NATO and Russia are significantly greater. So even if you just were to transfer MiGs, you know, Ru Russian-made fighters now in the Polish Air Force, transfer them into the Ukrainian Air Force, to get them from Poland into Ukraine, unless you're going to drive them on the highway, yeah requires that they fly from a NATO airbase, combat aircraft, you know, armed and fueled, flying across the border into Ukraine. And I, I think there's a significant chance that Putin would see that as the equivalent of the Democratic Republic of the Congo harboring Hutu rebels or Lebanon harboring the PLO. Um, yeah, it, it, again, there, there's a significant threshold that gets crossed in that kind of military movement of armed combatants who are ready to pull the trigger across an international border. And in the case of the MiGs, it's an exchange for a military capability that isn't likely to be decisive anyway. And the Ukrainian Air Force is not what's keeping Kiev independent right now. Uh, the, Rush, the Russian Air Force, interestingly, has had an operating tempo that's radically lower than anyone expected and has not been decisive in the war to date. It, it, even if I were worried primarily about the Russian Air Force, which I'm not, I'm much more worried about Russian artillery than I am Russian, air, Russian aircraft, the most militarily effective way for Ukraine to deal with the Russian Air Force is with surface-to-air missiles. It's not with more MiGs. So in exchange for the risk of flying armed combat aircraft across the border, we would get only a modest increase in Ukrainian defensive capability anyway. I, I think NATO and the United States have decided that the better balance of risk and benefit is in the transfer of armaments, not in flying no-fly zones and not in flying fighter aircraft across the border. And quickly, is that 
at risk, even if, you know, we approve more arms and, and other NATO countries do, is there a risk that with the strikes we're seeing near Lviv that it would not even be possible to get them these arms um, in a matter of days, weeks? I don't know. I think it's reasonable to expect that these arms shipments are going to start taking casualties. Uh, I, you know, they haven't so far, due to some combination of, of uh, good luck and good planning. They probably will, but they probably will not be annihilated either. There's an enormous amount of traffic that's required to keep a, a nation of 40 to 45 million alive and functioning. Trucks are moving all over the country all the time with all sorts of cargoes. The, the Russians are likely increasingly to try and hit critical nodes like the training base that, that they hit near the border the other day, for example, to try and make this harder and, and to create some attrition. But I don't think they're likely to be able to shut it off completely, especially while there's a conventional military defense of the frontiers that the Ukrainians are continuing to mount. Mm. So I, I think you can expect losses, but I think the majority of the, the shipments will probably survive to get where they're going for the foreseeable future. And Rose Gottemuller, um, we've heard some reporting this week that Russia had reached out to China for assistance, um, economic, military what would be the implications of China stepping up to help Russia? And, and do you think that's likely? Yeah, Marissa, let me just start by really, um, really agreeing with what Stephen just had to say about the resilience of these uh, armaments shipments mm -hmm. going in, along with humanitarian shipments, of course. But one of the things uh, it's worth noting is that the planning, as Stephen said, has been really good. They're not only moving in over a single highway from Poland, to Ukraine, they're coming in from various directions, from Slovakia, for example, from different countries. And so that uh, multiplicity of uh, routes, I think, is very valuable to the resi resilience and survivability overall. But to get to your question about China, yeah, this is interesting because China has a very delicate balancing act going on. You know, Europe is its biggest market and it's economic survival depends on staying in that, uh, that Europe's good graces in terms of being able to sell products. It does not want to get caught up in the sanctions that are now blanketing uh, the Russian economy and really shutting it down. It cannot afford to. So it's walking a delicate line. Uh, it just uh, you know, signed up to a big strategic partnership with Russia on February 4th at the opening of the Beijing Winter Olympics. It seems like an eon ago. But uh, during this ensuing period, it has, yes, uh, apparently indicated some readiness to help Russia. It's unclear exactly how but also it has stressed the necessity of making diplomatic progress and even hinted that it may be willing to facilitate some of the diplomacy. I frankly think that may be valuable, but uh, uh, again, behind the scenes, all this is going on. So can't say exactly how China is or will play, but that economic calculation and the Chinese are great business people. They are uh, really uh, going to have front and center their economic interests. And so that I think will give them pause from jumping in too enthusiastically on Putin's side. Yeah, I mean, the West, it seems, has really surprised Putin um, with how sort of cohesive the response has been. Um, I assume, Rose, that China must be looking at that as well, that this is not the sort of quick uh, blitz that, that Stephen laid out at the top. 
Yes, and I imagine it's also giving Beijing pause uh, because, of course, they've had their sights trained on Taiwan for some time now. But seeing this very coherent response uh, from the most powerful economies of the world, China, of course, being among them and not participating in the sanctions against uh, Russia, but seeing how the United States and Europe have been so solid in their response and so comprehensive also affecting everything from the Russian banking system to the operation of McDonald's restaurants across Russia. Uh, really, it's not even in some cases that sanctions are, are, are biting, it's that businesses themselves are now holding their noses and leaving Russia, even leaving some major investments behind. Uh, although in McDonald's case, they suspended operations, and I know they're still paying their people. They hope to get back in business. But, but companies have really decided that, uh, that Russia is, uh, is a poison market at the moment. Absolutely. And we're actually going to talk about that after I let you both go in just a minute and a half. Uh, Stephen Biddle, before we go, uh, as I said, you, know, you, you wrote this um, column, Arming Ukraine is Worth the Risk. We know President Zelensky will be talking to Congress tomorrow. What are you hoping to see in the coming week um, from the U.S. and its allies in terms of actual arms help? Well, I'm hoping that we continue to flow the kinds of arms that we're flowing now into the country as fast as we can move them. Um, I think that's the right thing to do. I think it might make sense at the margin to increase the lethality of the kinds of weapons a bit, sending, uh, for example, longer range surface air missiles rather than simply the shoulder fired variety that we've been emphasizing to date. But what I hope does not happen is that Zelensky motivates domestic opinion in the United States to support something like a no-fly zone. Zelensky would clearly like that. Um, I don't think that's in the United States' interest. I don't think that's in the broader global interest beyond Ukraine and Ukrainians. Uh, So I hope we get a little more of what we're doing, but not a lot more. All right. Stephen Biddle, Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at Columbia and Adjunct Senior Fellow for Defense Policy at the Council Council on Foreign Relations. We've also been talking with Rose Gottemuller of Stanford University, former Deputy Secretary General of NATO. Thanks to you both. Really appreciate your time. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. 